Here we are, folks. Episode 27, Silly Goose Gang podcast. And we're absolutely delighted to be joined this evening by Jason Gardner, a Navy SEAL Command Master Chief, Silver Star recipient and leadership instructor at Echelon Front. Jason, thank you a massive amount for joining us tonight. Hey, Chris and Ali, thanks for having me. Yeah, see, he said Chris first. He knows before we even start that I'm, I'm more important than you are, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are laid out left to right on my screen. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's always a it's always a real pleasure, um, Jason, to to speak to military guys, uh, and especially somebody as decorated as you are. Um, you know, I find you guys have a a, a real world perspective on everything. Um, you know, you understand the good and the bad, and it's uh, it's always a real pleasure to speak to you guys. So, um, thanks for taking the time. Um, I guess, you know, just diving straight in, I guess um, the world needs more of your um, leadership skills at the moment. There seems to be to be no real leaders taking, you know, certainly political leaders taking um, you know, any real charge of anything at the minute. Uh, yeah, it's it's just so difficult to actually get a good handle on what's going on and what the right moves are for for our leaders and you know over here in the u.s where we have a two-party system and things have gotten extremely polarized that if somebody that says something that makes sense over in the other party from whatever you know party you've decided you you you're in um then they're automatically wrong just because they're in the other party not necessarily because they're wrong And, and unfortunately it's devolved to the situation where we're, what are the soccer hooligans? They're like syndicates or something over there. And, you know, somebody in the other team says something and then it's like, well, they're automatically wrong. So it, it is interesting. I, I found that this is a kind of time where I've just, I'm paying a little bit of attention to what's going on. Uh, in the big picture and that by, I mean, globally and in the nation and paying a lot more attention to myself and my family and, uh, you know, something that, that I'm putting a filter of kindness on every aspect of how I interact with other people. And I find that to be helpful. Do you ever, um, do you ever look at, you know, because you're in America, so we'll talk about American presidents. Do you ever look at the way that they handle a situation and, you know, go, fuck, that's not, that's not how you should deal with it. Just how you respond to the press or how you, you know, respond to a situation that, you know, just because of COVID or because of the, the riots. Do you look at these uh, individuals and just go, ah, you know, we could do better? Sure. A- a- absolutely. And so when when a political leader gets up there and points a finger and says, this is happening because of that person over there or because of this organization over here, I just kind of roll my eyes. And I think everyone would like to see the political leader who stands up there and says, hey, you know what? We didn't invest a bunch of money. And let's use COVID as an example. We didn't invest a bunch of money in in research for these COVID strains because we have a limited budget and I need to look at where we're going to spend money. And I thought that these other things were higher priorities 
than this COVID was, but obviously I was wrong and we need to readjust what our priorities are. That would be really refreshing. I don't think that I've seen any leaders saying that. I have seen a few, but in general, not a lot. And we'd all be better served if, if the leaders took that kind of uh, angle. Again, the other thing I'm real careful about is the media that I pay attention to feeds to my biases and they'll say certain people said certain things and completely take it out of context or anything else. And when I research it, you know what they say, I'm like, ah, I can't believe anyone would say that girl. And then look into it and say, well, that's not actually what that leader said, or it was taken yeah. out of context. So yeah. more and more, I find myself just turning it all off. You know, when I'm on social media, I'm more interested in looking at pictures of somebody's kid doing something cool or uh, a nice outing that they had more than than a lot of this manufactured outrage we're in the middle of. Yeah. I think that's a, a good point, isn't it? You know, the way the social media is set up, it's, it either drives things to you that you're interested in or you've shown, an, uh, you know, an interest in or something that they know you're not interested in, but it's going to provoke some form of reaction and getting you resharing it, you know, commenting on it, whatever it might be. And I think, you know, it's it's one of possibly the, the benefits that came out of this situation is that people are maybe starting to cotton on to that a little bit more, that, you know, mm-hmm. it is driving purely for the outrage to get you reacting to it. Um, and as mm-hmm. always, as we said a few times on this podcast, quite often, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, that great area that, yeah. that, that doesn't often get talked about because of the polarization. I know you've got the two party system in the States there, Jason, and um, even over in, you know, in the UK and Scotland, you know, it's, it's very similar because we've got the Scottish devolved government um, and they're doing something completely different to the overall Westminster government in London. Um, and it's coming down to, you know, oh, Westminster are doing the best thing. No, the Scottish government are doing the best thing. No, the Scottish government are doing a part and it's, it's just bouncing around everywhere instead of that that middle area where people go, actually, you know, pros and cons on both sides. Some things have been done well, some things haven't. It's just getting messy. It's, yeah, um, right. And, and you know, a lot of it's just clickbait. There's yeah, something outrageous yeah. that they're trying to get you to click on. Uh, for the media, it drives ratings. They know that mm-hmm. if they spike your blood pressure and they, they get you alarmed about something that you're going to tune in and pay attention. And that's where they can charge advertising dollars. So they're, they're always going to, the media is always going to show stuff. That's going to scare us a little bit because it, it drives their ratings. I don't think it's, it's, it's always been that way and always will be that way. And so if you keep that in mind, it just helps not having your, your blood pressure spiked all day long, every day. Mm-hmm. Do you um do you see or do you know any any really great military leaders, Jason, that you think should and could go on to run? You know, because it seems like those guys seem to make you know the, the the best leaders overall. Okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you about that: politicians are not leaders; they're bureaucrats. And I I don't know that I I worry about someone's motives if they're looking for a job in politics. Because again, 
once you join one party, half the people turn you off. And so I feel like a lot of our great military leaders can affect more change and influence more people outside of politics because it's just the whole business is is really messy and it it's not set up to bring the best out of it. And I look at what a lot of our politicians do and they they just sit around and vote on a bunch of rules and that's not leadership that's that's being a manager really i think the real leaders are outside of politics and they're influencing people in mass like you know general mattis just I, i i read his book uh here recently fantastic book everyone i spoke to that's ever worked within like two circles of influence of him absolutely thought that he was an amazing leader. Great man. Would I want to see him go into politics? No, because he, as soon as he does that, half the people quit listening to him. And I don't, I, I, I don't think it works. And I think that he makes us all better people from the position he's at now. Uh, so there you have it. I, I hope that none of them go into politics and I'm not sure that politicians are legal or are, are, are actual leaders. Yeah. That's a good point. You, there's a, there's a Scottish comedian uh, called Billy Connolly who famously said back in the eighties, the desire to be a politician should ban someone from life forever being a politician. <laughs> Which kind yeah, of it, you know what I mean? It, like if you want, if you want to do that job, that, that bans you from ever being that person that gets that job. Exactly. Um, I know like in the military, when they look for a young officer to become an admiral's aide, they always pick the guy that doesn't want to do it. So he's not there just to, you know, further his own career. That's, you know, Jocko was chosen to to become an admiral's aide and was admiral's aide for a a period of time because they knew that he wouldn't want to do it. And he would, he would represent the admiral the best way possible is not just being like a yes man up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> going um, the opposite way now, uh, Jason, so you, you come from a military family. Is that, is that right? Yeah. My, my dad served in the Marine Corps for 23 years. He was a, uh, a JAG officer, which is um, uh, an attorney in the Marine Corps. And so I, I grew up in a military family and it was something that I, you know, I knew I wanted to do from a very young age and my path just didn't lead me to the Marine Corps. I decided to go into the Navy and a lot of it was on my father's advice where, uh, you know, he knew that, that I had a, a real interest in the water and the maritime stuff. And, uh, you know, he advised that I that I look at the SEAL teams, especially because it's it's it was at the time closed loop where you go into the SEAL teams and you can stay there for your whole career. And the Marines back in the early 90s, they didn't have that option. So that that was uh, one of his angles. And, you know, again, my oldest boy, his path took him to the army and he's driving tanks. And uh, okay. it's, uh, it's a good thing, but it's all good. So you, what year did you did you um, uh, sign up, Jason? That would have been early eighties. That'd be right. Yeah, I uh, I enlisted under our delayed enlistment program in nineteen eighty seven. Oh, okay, so that means you must have had a lot of um, 
uh, Vietnam vets around around uh, when, when you were getting in? Yeah, Uh-oh. there was there was there was a good amount of Vietnam vet vets around that uh, that I was exposed to that were mentors of mine coming up in the SEAL teams, and so that was that was great because we did we went a huge swath from basically seventy three or seventy four when the last SEALs were in uh, Vietnam until you know I think Grenada was the big next combat. And, you know, you have to be careful with lessons learned just by like a three day or Panama something where you're not under sustained combat because just because something worked once Mm. doesn't mean it works every time. And so those those Vietnam vets were just a huge wealth of knowledge because they they'd had prolonged exposure to combat and saw things that, you know, here they could, they could definitively tell you, here's how people are going to react when they're being shot at. Here's what works. Here's what, you know, we see that didn't work. Yes. That institutional memory, isn't it? That you get in organizations like, you know, the armed forces, I'm thinking my, my, my granddad was in the Marines and, and, the UK during the Second World War, and I remember him talking about that. You know, his group had gone through the Second World War. Um, some of them had served in Aden, some of them had served in Korea, um, along with the US troops. A small amount went out there, um, and he said there was that that institutional knowledge of kind of three campaigns that helped when young Marines were then joining. They were kind of told, "Look, this isn't from a book. This isn't from an exercise. This is from." the real world and you know you you can't buy that kind of knowledge in any way shape or form and i think it's important that you you lean into that that absolutely you you know um we were right on the verge of losing that institutional knowledge because there were some tactics that we started to use that really weren't good combat tactics. We found that out later, but it's because, you know, the Vietnam vets had kind of eclipsed that, you know, all of them had done all the time they could in the military and they weren't around to say, Hey guys, what you're doing isn't a great idea. And uh, it won't work when you're getting shot at. And then there were some lessons that we just had to, to relearn uh, after being in real combat. Cause you'll get into training scenarios and it, you know, this is, this, this is why none of a lot of traditional martial arts ever did good during uh, the UFCs, right? Because they just made assumptions about how people were going to react. They're like, okay, well, I'm going to touch you in this pressure point behind your ear, and you're going to pivot 45 degrees to your left, and then I'm going to you know, do an X block, grab your wrist, turn you around, and you're going to do all this stuff exactly yeah. And, 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 you know, on the mats, when you're doing jujitsu, and that's what's wonderful about it, is you're going full speed, yeah. and you're going, oh, well, this is how a person most yeah. of the time is, is going to react to, the, you know, me grabbing their arm, grabbing their gi here, and, and all those things. And, you know, I, I've got that light bulb coming over my head, and, and my it, it, with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I'm just a white belt with one stripe. You know, I don't have a lot of experience, but I have enough to know that mm. based that based on my prior experience with traditional martial arts, which just made all these huge assumptions about what people are going to do and yeah. what's going to work. <clears throat> so um, me, me and uh, Ali are both blue belts um, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. 
and it's uh, you know we regularly say it's you know we're, we're simulating murder. <laughs> yeah. That's essentially you know, that's essentially what we're doing. It's not it's not karate. You know I'm going to try and fuck you up and you have to stop me. <laughs> you know it's real real world. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, we can relate to that completely. Um, it's uh, it's uh, such a good martial art. It's such such it's the most fun. Uh, the most fun. Um, but what um, what 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 made you get into the jiu-jitsu? Was that working at Echelon Fun? Is that something that got you into it? Or? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, it's really part of our culture at Echelon Front. Uh, I got back into it before I'd gotten out of the Navy, just because Jocko was reinforcing it uh, so much. I'd actually started training in the early '90s with the same guy that got Jocko into uh, in, into jiu-jitsu, but stuff just came up in life and I lost interest and I prioritized like surfing and family and other stuff over, over jiu-jitsu and didn't get back into it until much later. But uh, it's something that, well, we're way up in Northern Washington, right on the Canadian border. And the closest okay. jiu-jitsu gym to us is in, in Canada. And uh, it's the borders closed right now. So we're kind of like on hold uh, mm. as a family for training, unfortunately. But it's something that, you know, my wife really enjoys it. My kids love it. It's it's good all the way around. Yeah, that's, that's cool one of the that great, involved. Yeah, that's one of the great things. My, as Chris knows as well, my uh, 17-year-old son trains jiu-jitsu with us. Um, and it's been a massive benefit to him as a, a young teen going through, as a lot of teens go through difficult times and, you know, things that you deal with when you're a teenager and being on the mats um, has been good for him. It's been good for him to be, you know, around adults that aren't teachers and, you know, because that's your really only exposure to, to adults as a teenager. It's probably been good for him to see me not just as dad and to get, you know, Chris giving me a bit of hassle and me giving a bit of hassle back and, you know, that, that stuff that adults do, you know, adult men do, where, you know, you give each other shit, you give each other a bit of banter, you give yeah. each other hassle, yeah. and they come back and it's, no one runs away crying about their hurt feelings, it's just, you know, it's just one of those things, and I think that's important uh, as well for a young kid. No, no, no egos and humbleness, you can't, you can't have an ego in the mats. Oh, right. And, and you know, your, your, your son's going to learn so much just from the example that you're setting him in there on how he deals with uh, failure and loss and, and watching all that stuff is, is, is fantastic. It's, it's a good thing, you know. And the other thing you, you mentioned about just having exposure to other adults, because you're going to find that at some point your kids just turn you off. And everything you say to them is just white noise. And then they'll have a coach or or a family member or a teacher say the exact same thing that you've been saying to them every day. But they'll listen to it. And at the end of the day, who cares where they get the message from as long as they're getting it? And so having, having exposure to, uh, to other adults and interacting with them is, is, is a great way to do it. One thing we really try to work with our kids a lot is uh, – you know, getting them to have good eye contact and have conversations with adults. And so because like if you meet a kid and the kid's head down, he's not talking to you or she isn't talking to you, you really don't want to interact with them. But uh, yeah. that it's, it's, um, it's definitely a better thing. 
we we have a we're we're uh, quite lucky. Our our coach uh, John, I know John will be listening to this at some point, so shout out to John. He's a he's 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 a, a really good guy. Um, you know, I know that Ali's kid takes a lot from him as well. He's a you know he's a a crazy old man. Uh, <laughs> he's a crazy old man, and uh, yeah, he's he's a great a great coach. Now you know, I, not just a great jiu-jitsu coach, but a, a great life coach. Um, you know, not just not just jiu-jitsu, but a great life coach. So yeah, we're we're lucky that we have that we have that um, at our gym. So you know, the, the younger guys are lucky to learn from those those guys. Uh, absolutely, and the more exposure they can have to it, the better off they're going to be. Yeah. Um, such an early age because your kids are quite young aren't they or you're you know you're the ones that aren't driving tanks at the minute i was referring to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Young, nine and eight and so it's it's great and they started training with the teenagers and the, the the school we go to kootenai uh bjj up there in roslyn canada and just have a great time yeah it's good so I'm uh, I'm going to just, this, these these conversations tend to jump all over the place, so I apologize sure. for that. But yeah, so just going back now, so um, so your you, what was your first deployment? So my first deployment was in 1989, and I was deployed. They used to deploy CLT a SEAL platoon on a ship, and we would go out on a regular deployment with the amphibious readiness group. And they call that an ARG, A-R-G-M. And so we would be out there basically as a contingency force with a bunch of Marines for anything that happened in the world. And uh, 1990, midway through our deployment, Iraq invaded Kuwait. Mm. We wound up doing a 10-month-long deployment. Uh, not a lot of direct action for for my platoon, we we did board several Iraqi tankers to stop the the flow of fuel, uh, but that was that was really it. We had several targets. Every target that we were getting ready to go hit, the Iraqis would either abandon or surrender just prior us to us hitting those targets, and so it it kind of fell apart. Now, my first real combat deployment would have been in 1995 to uh, Somalia. And this was two years after the big Black Hawk Down incident that was with the Rangers and the, the Delta Force guys that were there. Um, and uh, that was pretty sporty. You were a, you were a sniper <laughs> at that time, weren't you, Jason? Yes, I was a platoon sniper. I was, again, deployed on uh, an, with, an, with an amphibious readiness group. And the Marines were tasked with going in and uh, pulling the UN forces out of Somalia because everyone was leaving. And then uh, we were able to augment the Marines and come in, both of our snipers, myself and the other sniper. And then we brought like six or seven guys from each of from from our platoon to our uh uh positions to you know do comms be our medics uh spotters all that stuff yeah so mid, mid 90s then how much this is one of these questions that sometimes pop into my brain how much of the guys that were joining the seals at that time were influenced particularly the younger guys maybe influenced by the old uh Charlie Sheen and Michael Bn movie Navy seals because that was my first you know as a teenage you saw the movie yeah Charlie Sheen and Michael Ben. Did anyone watch that and think that's what we want to do? That's you know almost like a, a recruitment video for want of a better phrase. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's what you know Hollywood portrays stuff in a certain manner, and um, absolutely there were guys that saw that and said, "Hey, I want to go in and do that." And the only drawback to the movie is they make it seem like those guys were the only SEAL platoon in the world, and they were getting to operate all the time. Uh, but you just got to grind it out. You you will get those opportunities to go to combat if that's what you're looking for. You just have to do the time in the teams. But uh, I think that that was the case. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, if you had um, nine deployments, it must have been almost like you were uh, deployed all the time. Yeah, stretch across a thirty year career. It, it was uh, I I would do typically the way the way my career laid out. I'd do like three or four or three deployments in a row, then go to a training uh, command, take a break for a couple, three or four years, or, or three, two or three years, then come back to a command, do another deployment or two more deployments, and then that's that's what it happened. I know for, uh, shoot, I did four of those deployments in the last 10 years, so it was towards the end there. It started to grind pretty heavily. I'm lucky that, uh, you know, my wife is good with that. Yeah. <laughs> what um what what was the difference because uh, obviously you'd be in I would imagine it'd be quite unique to have, to have done first Gulf War and then second Gulf War. What was the difference in you know the the Iraqi military and, and and their capabilities? Was there a massive difference over that you know ten twelve year period? So I wasn't there for the push up north. But I, I think that the difference was is that you went the first war was a conventional war. The second one was fighting an insurgent war, which is really, really difficult because the insurgents are purposely trying to blend in with the civilians. And a lot of times they're, you know, they're hiding behind the civilians and they're just making it more difficult because they know what your rules of engagement are. So yeah. like when I was in Iraq in 2005, you know, I don't think that, you know, I was in a deployed Ramadi for a period of time there and I'm not sure how many times that I was shot at directly, but you know, every time we rolled out of the gate, the improvised explosive devices, the mines were a real threat. And that was super frustrating in that, you know, okay, Hey, our convoy just hit another IED. There were three guys wounded in the truck in front of me and, these people, people are saying they don't know who put it up there. And, and it's, it's, it's like trying to grab smoke with your hand, you know, it's, it's, it's not mm-hmm. something you can really bust off into. I, I did a couple of sniper, several sniper overwatch positions, you know, and uh, we'd go out and we'd, we'd go, okay, well, this is a bad area where they're planting improvised explosive devices you know, at least two a week, or there were two there in the last week and they would just shift around. So we'd go out and, and, uh, set up an overwatch position, you know, in a sniper hide somewhere on that, in, on that route or wherever it was, where we thought we were going to be able to get some inter- insurgents and you get all set up and then you're, you're out there, right? You're out in town. You're basically, if you get on the radio and you need help, it's going to be, 20, 30 minutes before somebody can get back out to you. So there's eight of you out there alone and 
probably nervous because it has happened before in, in Ramadi where entire sniper elements got rolled up and wiped out. And so you're nervous about that. It's definitely sketchy. And then sun comes up and you're convinced that everybody out on the street is some kind of insurgent. So you, I'd be up on the rifle. I'm like, oh, okay. That guy looks like an insurgent to me. And look at that. He's getting in the trunk of his car. He's probably getting ready to pull out an IED. Wait, wait, wait. Nope. He's pulling out a tire. This is odd. I wonder if he's got an IED in that. No, no, he's changing a flat. You know, <laughs> the guy's not insurgent. He's changing a flat tire. And, and pretty soon, everybody that looks like they're doing something nefarious is really just going about their everyday life. And, and you know, on that operation, I didn't see, you know, one insurgent. And I was probably watching Sesame Street for that eight-hour <laughs> period of time and that that was a difficult part of it because you know there's just a bunch of iraqis trying to live their lives in the middle of this huge mess and so yeah it's just completely different than going after somebody in uniform in the first gulf war mm -hmm. you know and they were driving tanks and uh all that to to an insurgent battle which they're tricky yeah. Yeah. is that is that part of that institutional memory we were talking about that you nearly lost the ability to deal with the insurgency rather than you know regimented military forces in the u.s military do you think it came to close to that point yes absolutely it, it, but it comes close to that point um because when you lose people that were actually in combat that can validate what they're thinking people will start to spin stuff and they say, well, this Vietnam vet told me this, and they tweak it towards whatever think they think their tactic or narrative should be. Um, you know, we got real focused in the SEAL teams on doing direct action missions. And that was like going out at night, looking for bad guys, kicking down doors, and grabbing them and bringing them back, and then starting that whole cycle again. And, and when Jocko and Leif de deployed in 2006... They, they look, they're like, hey, we've been doing this for several years and nothing's changed. Maybe we should try something different. And so they, they shifted the model of what the SEAL teams were doing instead of doing their own deal, you know, which is, it's, it's a sexy mission. It's a lot of fun, blowing doors down and grabbing bad guys to going out during the days and supporting the conventional forces that are doing a really dangerous, dirty, rough job and giving them direct support. And you don't get a lot of credit for that personally, but they actually started to move the needle needle where if you look at the sine wave that was violence in Ramadi, they had an effect with it where it's, it's the raid, the raid mentality while it's necessary, if that's the only thing you're doing, it's not working. It's not going to work. And it wasn't working. Yeah. At least in Ramadi. Yeah. How much of your um, deployments, particularly maybe towards the, the second part, but was there a lot of the, what's known as the hearts and minds? Were you doing that as well as the kind of patrols and the, the kicking down doors and grabbing bad guys? Or was it, was it not at that stage yet? No. I mean, they... The military as a whole, you know, going into 2005 was definitely had realized that the battle space was the hearts and minds of the populace. 
And so if we wanted them to start stop tacitly supporting the insurgents, we needed to let them know that that we were their friends and we had their best interest in mind. And you can't do that if you're just sitting on your base and or if your patrols are nine armored vehicles roaring through town as fast as you can. So there there has to be some risk taken. Uh, and that that built on, you know, you go, taking the Iraqis out in the street, it built on us when we were going out on uh, patrols in Afghanistan and taking Afghanis with us and understanding what their culture was and, and what's important to them and making sure that, you know, we weren't creating five more Taliban for every one that we were mm-hmm. taking off the battlefield. And that that's, you know, they understand it if, if they're, if some if an insurgent is shooting at you from their compound and you drop a bomb on their compound and level it, they, they, a lot of the Afghanis are like, yeah, I get that. Uh, but, you know, if you go into a compound that and, and sometimes we get bad intel and you, you're rough with everybody, you're short with them, you don't look and say, OK, hey, wait, this this was a bad target and you don't adjust how you're dealing with everybody. You're just going to mm-hmm. make them all mad. So yeah, so, so there's that. How um how how different would would you know Iraq or Afghanistan be, uh, Jason? If the the rules of engagement you know were different, and if and you know in the first instance, how how different could it have been? How 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 is how frustrating are they? Everybody has always been frustrated with the rules of engagement. You know, going back to probably I I don't think like. Uh, Genghis Khan's guys were frustrated with it because they didn't have any because they just <laughs> killed everyone. And so they they are frustrating. It's a real balance because there is a way that we need to behave on the battlefield and mm-hmm. behaving as a complete, utter savage where you're just killing everybody is not helpful. And in the long term, it's not going to result in a win. Now, there. There was a period in t- of time in Afghanistan where I feel like the leadership at the higher levels wasn't listening and second guessing everything the people that on the ground were telling them. And that was that was problematic. And the apex of it is uh, if you look at or if you understand what Dakota Meyer was one of our Medal of Honor recipients and his story is absolutely gut-wrenching to listen to where they were you know asking for a medevac to get wounded out and they were getting second guess well who do you want to get out what service are they in they're asking for uh artillery fire and being refused that you know combined arm support which every force should have when they go into the field but they everyone had just lost trust with everybody else and had gotten to a point where those rules of engagement did hamstring everybody i the bottom line is what does winning look like in iraq and afghanistan and did we have the will to actually win i i don't know what those answers are there's a lot of factors that that fit into all these things uh, you know i tell you that we have to have a dialogue with the enemy at some point 
you know, if there's going to be peace, because half of Afghanistan, it's not like the Taliban is some party. The Taliban is half of Afghanistan. That's their culture. It's their way of life. And so we, we have to be able to find some kind of middle ground with them. And there you have it. Uh, you, you look at, I'm only vaguely aware of what was going on in Northern Ireland because I didn't live through it. But I talked to a lot of people who were there and there was horrible violence there for a long time, but it wasn't until they were able to transition to actually a political solution to where yeah. now there's peace there, right? Yep. And, yeah, and, and that, looks, that looks like you saying to somebody, I know that you've spilled some of the blood of people on my side and we just need to move past that at some point, or we're never going to get out of this cycle of violence. Mm. And all those need to be factored in. I, I believe, um, I believe in Ireland, uh, in Southern Ireland anyway. I believe there's like a new wave of young guys, um, kind of, you know, getting back into it. And uh, you know, I, I, you know, I don't think I, 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 they would take an awful lot. To be violence again in Ireland. I think it's still very fragile, very, very. I mean, I, I, um, I boxed over in uh, Belfast, and um, you know, there's still armored Land Rovers on the streets, and you're told not to go to this area. You know, and between you know, the Catholic and the Protestant bit, there's you know, big no man's land with fences and barbed wire. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's it's peaceful, but not completely. Uh, Settled, uh, as how I would say, as you know, there's, there's, there's still some stuff there, but um, how, how do you solve how do you how do you solve decades of violence and yeah. you know a few years? It's not it's not it's not easy, is it? No, it's not. It's got to be better than it was, and the only way you got to yeah, do yeah. that is through honest communication where people are talking because it just communication cleans everything up so nicely because. We're always making assumptions about what we think other people are thinking. And mm. so the only thing that cleans that up is to say, you know, hey, here's what I'm actually thinking here. And, and what are you thinking? And where can we come to an agreement instead of just because because typically I'll tell you, I think your mind is going to assume the worst about what other people are thinking when you when you come up with because you haven't been communicating what they're thinking. Yeah. I think um, I think it was uh, it might have been Jocko on on a podcast. Um, you know, and he was saying when I think they had been in Ramadi, and um, you know, was, you know, speaking to the average Iraqi, they just wanted to fix a roof and you know change oil in the car and go play soccer with their kids. And the average person was very much like the average American. It was just that there's this really horrible element hiding with amongst them. But the average person was very similar. The, um, yeah. And this is why I've just, I've come up with a new rule six months ago and I, I've quit using generalizations to describe people because I found that everybody I talk to, uh, when, when it gets right down to what is important to them and what their values are, we should pretty much everybody is almost the same. Yeah. And, and there's a small amount of deviation, but it's so small that it doesn't matter. 
And so I find like, if I talk to one of my friends who, who's, a, a, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm really central, but I used to be more, more conservative. And, uh, you know, uh, one of my friends that, that I, I would describe as a progressive or as a liberal. And if I just think of him as, is his first name instead of the liberal or the progressive that I can tone down the conversations that I have with them. And then nine times out of 10, we're not that far off and and we're close enough that he's still a dear friend, friend of mine, you know? And, uh, I think that's the problem you run into when you use generalizations, then you dehumanize people and then you behave in ways that you wouldn't normally behave. Kind of like on the internet, people say stuff to other people in these chat rooms and things that they would never say in real life and not because they might get punched in the face, but because they know they they could see the hurt that their words Mm. would actually express on the other person's face and immediately regret it. And, and so that's one of the tricky things about a generalizations and dehumanizing people and B, you know, just how we all figure out how to use social media and the internet. Um, and people just not being empathetic enough. That, um, actually, that makes me laugh because I've seen something today. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, it was getting shared today. It was a, a fan giving Paul Felder, the UFC fighter, shit. And he just said, you know, uh-huh. you, you, should, you should return. You should stick to commentating. Um, you know, you're done. You're finished as a fighter. And Paul Felder just replied saying, does it make you feel good saying that to somebody? Would you say this to my face? And the, the fan said... No, because you'd beat the shit out of me. That's why I'm saying it. It was one of those things where, oh, okay, okay, I'll, I'll get. Uh, you have to give him that one. He, he was honest about the whole thing. It was just so. Yeah. Funny. It was so it was funny. At least, at least he was honest about it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's, it's you know, it's funny. Like you say, um, most people just want same things. They want to, you know, look after their family. You know, see kids, maybe see friends. You know, have some, maybe have a couple of beers and have fun. It, everybody really wants the same thing in life. You just get um, all this extra noise that, that is, I mean, bullshit really. Um, that causes all all the issues. I mean, and you, you have to look. I mean, if you actually look at you know all the craziness just now uh, on on all sides, you know, people ripping everything down. All they really want to do is is protect you know the friends who are a minority or something i don't know why we can't make this easier you know it's why do we have to have all this craziness why can we not and this is where it comes back into i think the leadership of saying somebody saying okay let's everybody calm down everybody calm down let's let's not smash windows up and let's not rip statues down just now what is everybody looking for here you know what what is the what's the end goal and um there doesn't seem to be any, you know, that it seems in America that they're allowing, uh, you know, the police to be defunded and it just seems madness. But it seems like they need a leader to say, everybody stop. Okay, calm down. And this is, this is how we're going to do this. Yeah, it, no one would listen. And the, the thing is, <laughs> is that that we we go through these this these these big points of friction that this nation is going through right now is just part of us working through 
some real issues we've got with uh, uh, racism. And, and I have no idea what the experiences are of anybody of color. And I'm hoping that's the right word, but I don't know what their experiences are. So I could make assumptions what their experiences are, but, but I don't know. And so I, I think it's a time where I've been trying to shut my mouth and listen and see mm. if they've got a validation in their points. I mean, it was in the early 60s when we got rid of segregation in this country. That's not that long ago. And there's a lot of people that are obviously, their parents lived through it. They heard stories of it. And that segregation is straight up institutional racism. You know, and in, I don't think it was until the 70s when they finally got r- rid of it because the Civil Rights Act got held up in the courts in Boston. So it's something that's real. It's there in a lot of people's minds. And there are good cops and there are bad cops. There are good soldiers. There are bad soldiers. They're good and bad of everything. And, and we all just need to do the best we can to, to move forward and see, you know, see what, how we're going to get better. Uh, it's and the, we kind of seem to have riots every four to six years here these are pretty mm. big but uh it's something that just kind of happens with and i don't know if it's a factor of people you know living in cities because it's it's in areas of high population density mm. and i think you get in those areas with high population density where people get that uh same there, there's a there can be a lack of a sense of community yeah. and uh I, I don't know what the right answer is. I, I, I'm just trying not to sweat the small stuff. And I know that there's a lot of people that are angry and there's a lot of people that maybe have some good reasons to be angry yeah. and let's listen and let's work through this. Will will we still be in riots in another two months? I, I don't think so. Or maybe we are, and maybe we work, work through it. Yeah. Yeah. There seems How to be like you... as well a, a bit of a collective energy around cities, isn't there? Which can sometimes be positive, you know, that buzz of a big city. But I think as well it can be negative and kind of um, sort of generate that friction. Well, yeah, we're always going to over-adjust. Like, yeah. you know, the pendulum's here and then we're going to swing it too far the other way and then it's it's going to go back this direction and it's... You know, it just keeps adjusting. What? But here's the thing. I don't know anybody that is walking around screaming or yelling or, or treating anybody in a way that they shouldn't be treated. Yeah. I, I do have friends that, um, you know, they don't always use the politically correct things to say. And, and then it's on me to go, bro, we can't you can't talk like that anymore. That's how we all adjust and move in the same direction. You know, um, there's a lot of people worried about masculinity going away and that, you know, we've over, we're making our kids too soft. I don't know. Uh, I don't think my kids are soft. I look around at a lot of the kids that uh, are, I live in a real rural area. They don't seem to be all that soft. They seem to be good to go. I mean, you know, our forefathers that started this nation were wearing wigs and leotards and powder in their faces. They were basically prancing around in drag. And so 
How masculine is that? Masculine yeah, enough to uh, have a revolution and get this done. So a lot, a lot of this stuff, I think, is just people are being aggravated for the sake of being aggravated. And I'm not say, uh, and I'm not minimalizing people's complaints with the whole racism thing. I'm, I'm just saying, in general, people are just a little too wigged out. So, how do you think everybody? Could learn from from uh, you know your leadership stuff. How do you think everybody could? Uh, is there something in there for everybody to reassess and reevaluate to move forward? Yeah, it all starts with you. So when Jocko and Leif came up with the concept of extreme ownership, and they didn't come up with the concept, it's a concept that people have been talking about for a long time, but they when they started down this path of leadership, the first place they looked is at themselves. How can I improve myself first and then start radiating that example out? So, you know, I, before I start bad mouthing any other politicians or somebody else, I need to look at, okay, here's what I don't like about said politician and where do I exhibit those same traits and how can I fix them? Because that's the only person I can affect is myself, right? And the ultimate freedom that I have is how I react to any given situation I'm, I'm presented with. You know, and I'm stealing this stuff from the Stoics, from General Mattis, from Jocko and Leif. It, it all starts with us right here. You know, it's the, the thing that uh, um, Admiral McRaven said at, at that commencement speech. It's wonderful. He's like, you want to change the world? Start by making your bed. Yeah. Start by cleaning your own house. Start there and then work your way towards all these bigger issues. But you can only fix. You're the only person you have control over. Fix that first, then start getting after all this other stuff. Now, what does that mean? That means that I'm working on myself, and then when I'm with my buddy and he says something maybe kind of sexist or something, do I go, well, that's on him to fix? No. That's on me to go, hey, bro, um, it's just not cool to talk like that anymore. It's not, not a cool way to be. There, yeah. you know, I, I think that's it. It's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's one of these things that I see quite regularly as, you know, people who you know say you know they want to they want to fix it you know the the environment they want to to heal the world but you know they'll walk past a plastic bottle lying in the street you go, oh, oh i mean okay okay so you want to fix yeah you want you want to get rid of petrol cars and everybody run about in battery cars but i mean you can't even pick up because you know oh well it's not mine yeah that's not that's not the issue though you know the issue is it's there um, yeah, and it, you know, so there's a lot of this. I think a lot of um, sort of social posturing goes on with this stuff, um, where, as you've just said, you know, you have to make sure your own house is in order. So I can't, you know, we can't fix the world until we make sure there's no rubbish, trash around about our house. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. yeah I suppose as well, people. Do you see as well just being? you know, sort of ages, in our generation, shall we say, Jason, that um, uh -huh. you see people sort of have that abdication of responsibility. Like, well, it's not me that's dealing, it's not me that's done that, so it's on you to fix that, or... 
Yeah, I don't know. See, I was I I've got a different life experience because I've been in the military for the last, you know, 30 years and the last 20 years we've been at war. So I I've seen like people complain about the millennials. Well, I'll tell you, none of the millennials in the generation after that, I don't have any complaints with them. They were they were good to go. They didn't they did a hard job for crappy pay under crappy conditions and really didn't complain that much. So, mm-hmm. so I, I'm hesitant to say that there are general, general, generational issues, because again, that would be fun, breaking my rule about just not making generalizations. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, uh, I think anybody, if you sit down and have an honest conversation with them and, uh, actively listen, that you'll find out you're you're heading in the same direction or you can get an idea to stick and you can plant a little seed with them and get ideas to stick and and get better but but back to fixing yourself most people are going to pick up things from the example that we all set as opposed to what we say yeah absolutely um so just um you know just because you're talking about the millennials there so what do you what what would be the differences from you know the vietnam vets you encountered uh when you first entered to the young guys when you left what's it what was the differences in them as soldiers and as humans so you know i bet you if you hit them at the same time in their military experience and their combat experience they would have been exactly the same you know when i joined i was at the at a different area in the spectrum of my maturity and my experience levels i usually didn't ask why a lot i would just do things and mm. the millennials the younger generation tends to ask why more, and that's a good thing because why not? You know, if someone asks yeah. you why and you say, because this is the way we've always been doing it, and, or because I said so is a weak answer. It's not taking an honest look at whatever your procedure is or whatever it is and saying, okay, well, why are we doing this way? Is there a way to do it better? It's, it lacks a lot of humility. Um, mm. So there's that, but I, shoot uh the the young men and women that i served with you know coming up they they gosh when i measure myself against them so i i take the jason gardner that was at the same level that they are and and they i think they were much better leaders than than i was and more competent anyhow this is uh this is this this is why we like to speak to to military guys because you have this unique perspective of different people at you know different generations and it's um it's, it's an interesting thing i know just to touch on something there one of my military friends uh an raf guy was a, a weapons specialist and he said you know when he left um the military and he went to, uh he was doing engineering and stuff um he's an ejector seat specialist and, and he, he he was working on a job he told me this and he says you know this old guy was doing something and he said you're doing that wrong and the guy you know the older guy said i've been doing it this way all my life and he went well you've been doing it fucking wrong all your life then haven't you <laughs> and goes he was 100 percent wrong but an old guy had done it a certain way and he said well, that's not that's not the best way to do this you know just about you've been doing it wrong 
<laughs> it's just it's one of those. Yeah, things, um, yeah. It's, you know, you, you you can be wrong. Sometimes you have to say I am wrong. Um, yeah, absolutely, and, and maybe the way to to you know, because walking up to someone who's been doing something for thirty years and telling them they're doing it wrong is kind of like hitting them across the face with a dead <laughs> fish, right? <laughs> if, if you want them to to change. You know, or see what he's doing. There, there, there might have been a different approach to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah, crazy. We, uh, we, we, we tend to not be the most diplomatic people in Scotland. We're usually quite. Uh, I don't. I don't know if this is your experience from from any Scottish you've encountered, Jason, in the military. But we tend to be quite feisty and quite fiery. Uh, we don't. We don't generally be the best, uh, most diplomatic people. Yeah, and then then again, if ever, if that's what how everyone's operating, then it's no factor saying it to them because everyone's yeah. got pretty thick skin. Um, did you yeah. um, did, did did you did you do any work with any any British guys? So uh, no, been around them. Had uh, some guys from the UK working in joint commands with us, but I was never actually in the field. But I was always struck by. Th- their uh, professionalism of mm. uh, of everybody from the UK because they just had everything dialed in really really well. Did a lot of work with the uh, with the Australians, uh, and again, mm. super competent, super professional. Um, did quite a bit of work with the Poles and the Danish as well, and again, really impressed with uh, those guys and the Canadians. I think yeah, um, they're great. We had we had on uh, we had uh, Clint Emerson on, uh, who was a, uh-huh. a, a seal as well. Uh, you know Clint, and he said, you know, he said he worked with some Polish guys, and they were they were pretty, pretty legit. Yeah, really good. Oh guys. yeah, yep. Uh, uh, um, yeah, quite interesting. Um, so yeah, you uh, you uh, moved into the, the the training world as well, didn't you, Jason? Was that towards the end of your career that you started doing the the yeah. training for the Navy SEALs? So it, I was in and out of it, and I was always involved with the the sustainment training for SEALs getting ready to, to deploy, as opposed to the selection course that we have where guys are running around with boats on their heads and logs. So you, being at a SEAL team is really burning your candle at both ends. Right now, they're on you're on a two-year cycle, so you do a year-and-a-half-long workup, which has you gone away from home almost as much as the stinking deployment. It's just in smaller chunks spread out. And then you go do a six month deployment. Then you come back and you do all that again. And three, maybe four iterations of that is about max for anybody's attention span. And they just don't have enough balance in their life. And so they, they have, you know, You'll, you'll take a break and go to a training command where you're training other guys going through training, or you can go work at one of our other places to work, like at, at our selection course or some of our specialty schools where they teach individually schools like sniper school or comms course or stuff like that. And so it was spattered throughout my career where I was in and out of the SEAL team and then over at a training command and out of the SEAL team and then uh, back at the training commands. The... The thing, you know, that that I love being a sniper was uh, that was my bread and butter. That's what I love doing. 
And so I was, I ran a bunch of our sniper selection courses or, or was an instructor for them. And then, uh, was teaching all the advanced sniper sustainment training for the West coast seal teams for three years at the, our training detachment before basically at, at some point you just promote out of being a sniper and I get, didn't get to do it well, but did a good job of managing the guys underneath me and then got super lucky. Like in my 2009 deployment to Afghanistan, you know, I, I got to go out into the field, even though I was a senior chief in charge of two seal platoons we had both platoons out in the field just getting after it wholesale. And so I had the opportunity to get back on the rifle. You know, one of our five, we went into this town called Marja, which was just complete, complete Taliban town. They, they, they owned it. No one had been into the town until we went in there in 2009. The Marines cleared it in 2010, but they had such freedom of movement. They were consolidating all the opium there and then converting it into heroin and shipping it down to Pakistan because that's how the Taliban was fun in the war. And the S, the Green Berets came up with this operation where uh, um, they were going to go in there in the middle of town and s- grab four square blocks and just grab all this, hold all this opium in the middle of this Taliban town. And, uh, you know, they said, we need some more people to do this. You want to come with? And we're like, heck yeah. So we (laughs) went in there four day long firefight. The only time the fighting stopped was in the middle of the night. And we know we have the advantage because we have night vision. We're just bombing everything. And then they all in the heat of the day. So baby, basically from noon till about 4 PM, it's too hot. The Taliban basically commits, quits fighting. The rest of the time, we were just getting after it. I, I, and I've got pictures of we had in, in the, one of the compounds we were holding was a blocking position. And we had a, a, a 50 cal machine gun set up in the window. And you can look at the, the entire floor is just covered with brass from us shooting back wave after wave of assaulters. It, it, you know, it was incredible. Uh, the guys in the element in, in a building that was about a hundred yards from my building, they had this awesome thing called a ALGL, which is a 40 millimeter grenade launcher. That's a machine gun. Thunk, 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 thunk. It's pumping it down <laughs> and it has this crazy computerized sight that goes on the top of it. Right? So you, you adjust the, the machine gun and you're looking at this video screen and then there's a little cursor on the, the target you want to shoot and you hit a button and it automatically lasers to shoot and does all the elevation for the ballistics of those 40 millimeter grenades you're getting ready to launch and does the adjustment and then you can just boom send a four round burst there. So these guys are mixing it up with these uh, Taliban fighters that are a tree line and there's this, uh, we got aircraft overhead and they're talking to the aircraft after they just launched like four rounds at this fighting position. And they say, Hey, can you give us a, a battle damage assessment? Can you let us know how effective our rounds were? And the aircraft comes back over the radio and they said, two enemy killed in action. One ran away on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so you know i i was really fortunate 
as you know, even when I promoted out of some of the tactical roles, I was still able to be out there on the field uh, with the guys mixing it up. And, uh, you know, it, I, I, I struggle with this stuff because, you know, you, you've heard me say, hey, look at everybody else's opinions and try to be kind. And then there's this other aspect of me that is just bloodthirsty for a lack of a better term. And well, it's, um, I'm just trying to keep him under control. It's, it's funny because uh, you you really came alive there when you when you were talking <laughs> about going into battle. Oh you you absolutely <gasps> came alive. It was just like a critic, you know, critic Curtis going, "Fuck yeah, <laughs> yeah." It's a. Uh, I get really excited about that, and you know, it's like. <sighs> I'm extremely uh, happy you guys exist. How, how do you yeah. control your adrenaline during a four-day firefight then, Jason? When you're, when, because like Chris said, your eyes came alive. I could see it in your eyes that you were like, yeah. So how do you control your adrenaline over the course of four days? Is it just a sheer adrenaline wave for four days or? Uh, it, it just, uh, it just, you just get, you get that initial spike. And then once you're over the hump, then you're just like, eh. Oh, oh, look at that. I almost got hit by that last bullet. Okay, I'm going to take a little bit better cover. And there isn't a, a huge adrenaline spike. There's an initial push. And then after that, it just you just get a little bit numb to it. Um, there was another position we were in where we were almost... We were almost overrun, and I was convinced I was going to die there. And initially, you know, as I'm laying flat out on my belly with behind a small rock wall, and I'm looking up, and I'm seeing bullet striking these rocks like 10 inches from my head and watching the rock start to erode i was like oh, okay that this is it i'm gonna the trajectory this is on i'm gonna get shot i'm probably gonna die here and then uh set that aside and got on to doing what i had to do because that's that's what you have to do you just to keep you know keep moving forward and then later, later on, you'll you'll go like, whew, man, that yes, was all." Um, I got to question some of my life decisions right now. <laughs> <laughs> is there any? Is there any thought? I've always wondered about this. You know, uh, 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 you know, in those situations, is there any thought of, well, if I'm going out, I'm not going out lying on my belly. I'm going to go out fucking shooting back. Is there any? How does how does the, the process work in your head? So uh, it's interesting you said that. That's that's what I'm I I think. However, um, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Conan. I don't fear death, but only a fool invites it. And yeah. when we were laying there, the guy right next to me who happened to be our joint technical air controller, he's like, "We got to get up and shoot back." And so I started lifting my head up, and I'm like, "Nope." Like we can't shoot back right now because we can't even stick our faces up there. You would no, I would no sooner put my face into a table saw than I would have to put my head up in that situation. Now, uh, we got some aircraft in that was able to startle the Taliban into where they were. They had to be a little bit less aggressive and it gave us a breathing room to get up. And as soon as we could, everyone got up and started shooting back. And then we were able to manage the whole, that whole firefight a little bit better because we were in a position to start returning effective fire. Uh, and 
and hadn't completely lost the initiative, which initially we we had lost the initiative and it wasn't looking good until those those if those aircraft had been 10 minutes late uh we would have been overrun for sure um, yes that's, that's a, something that i've always thought about you know when you see you know whenever you've seen um some of these 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 horrible you know terror attacks and you know always run through my head is do you would i how you know how would you react in that situation do you just sit there and 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 wait for something terrible to happen or do you go fuck it i'm not this is not the way i'm going to i'm going to try and do something that's you know i've always thought about it thankfully i've never had to, to experience it but it's just you know it's interesting to hear somebody's perspective on that yeah it's um, it's so it's so it's so hard to tell like uh you you see a lot of the war movies where People will just fold under the pressure. And I always wondered, is that going to be me in combat? What is it going to be like? I'm going to fold under pressure. And what saves us in the military is they put us in some really, really intense training so that when you're actually in those situations, it's not for the first time. Let's talk about the jujitsu parallel here for a second. Um, my wife, because she trains jujitsu, if some guy grabs her, it's not going to be the first time some sweaty, strange dude has grabbed her. And so her brain is not going to process it the same way that if it was with the first time, you're going to completely panic. And 90% of the population is going to lock up in that panic situation. But I, I'm going to venture that because you do roll and you're going with your buddy who's trying to murder you, that, you know, hey, you're going to hear an explosion. You're probably going to get down and then you're going to start looking around trying to figure out what's going on. Now, if you're smart and you've thought about this kind of stuff ahead of time and you're like, okay, well, um, you know, I hear a shot or somebody scream, I'm going to get down and then I'm going to start looking for an exit because the best thing for me to do next is going to be to run and move. It's harder to shoot a moving target and you're harder to stab if you're moving too. So that's what you're going to do. And then, then figure out how you can help after that. But if you're playing that around that little scenario around in the back of your head, like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm at this concert or I just walked into this restaurant. What happens if this, where's the exit? You know, those, those are things that everybody can run through that in your head. So then when it happens for real, it's not the first time that it happens to you, but mm -hmm. The edge that you've got being on the mats is that, you know, it's anything can go there. So you're kind of already used to those unpredictable situations. Uh, talk yeah. about it with your kids, too. I talk about this stuff with my kids. I'm like, hey, all right, here's what's going to happen. If we hear a loud shot, I want you to get down and then I need you to look at me because I'm going to be trying to figure out where we're going to run. And, uh, um, and then we're going to move all together. I need you to be tight on me. Mm. Yeah. So I've at least got that so, in their heads. Yeah. So. I suppose it's as well in those stressful situations that simple instructions, you don't want to overload with lots of information. It's just such a simple one. Get down, look at dad. <laughs> Do you yeah. Know? And, and let you, with your experience and your maturity and everything else, worry about the other stuff that's such a simple instruction to give your kids you know get down look at dad that's beautiful isn't it 
Yeah, you know, they the the Jocko and Leif developed the four laws of combat, or Jocko developed four laws of combat, and the second one is simple. Cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, decentralized command. And that simple is huge. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, especially I've um, I've I've you know, take this back to a, a really basic level, not a, not a military level, but um when I when I was boxing uh, Jason, I used to like uh, my coach to give me one or two instructions. Give me some water, <laughs> put, put some, yeah. a cold towel on my head and give me one or two instructions. Don't complicate it. One or two things, okay, you're eating this right hand, you, you know, have to slip, you have to slip to the left or right or, you know, whatever it was. That's it. Don't give me, you're doing this, you're doing that, he's doing this. You know, keep it really simple and, um, you know, try and get out of it. But, you know, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, as you're saying with the, the Jocko thing is, it, they can be extremely complicated, but you can make them really simple, really easy. Um, so sort of these life and death situations. Um, like you say, the best the best way to to get out of a sticky situation is get out of the sticky situation. <laughs> sure, and and it, you know it takes a con- conscious effort. To, to just simplify everything. Um, and so that's another good thing to think about. Yeah. So yeah. It's also true what you were saying about even just being in jujitsu and having the experience of someone grabbing you, someone pressuring you. Because I'm sure you, maybe the first time on the mat, I know I, I remember feeling that, and I've seen it happen with people that came into the gym since, you know, me and Chris have been training. The first time you maybe mount someone with heavy pressure, and they kind of get a claustrophobic and pat, oh, and they, they tap, and you're like, I didn't actually do it. No, it was just the, the sheer weight of something on you. And people don't yeah. have that exposure day to day, or, you know, week to week, mm-hmm. or however way. They're just, they've never experienced it before, and it does, it shut, it puts that panic in that you can't even think of simple things like, you know, a, a hip escape or, or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Something that seems quite simple looking back, but they yeah. just just panic with the pressure or pan you know whether that's physical pressure whether that's emotional pressure of the situation it's that pressure or whichever way you want to think about it that, that <clears throat> results in bad decisions you know if someone mentioned you, you you try and bench press them off and you've got chris that weighs however much chris weighs these days <laughs> you know you're not going to be able to bench him off because chris just goes dead weight and eventually my arms are yeah. going down and chris is back or, or he arm bars me or whatever it's whatever it's going to be um, yes, uh... absolutely, and that's it's that pressure that you know makes us improve across the uh, board. Is, is it is it pressure creates diamonds? I think is the is is the phrase. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Have you have you had the the the, the pleasure to roll with um, Jocko yourself? <laughs> no. no, no, I have I ha- I haven't rolled with him yet. I haven't had the opportunity. You should. Uh, I mean, that would that would be something super cool to to roll with. Roll Jocko would be a uh, just really cool. Mauled. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it would just yeah, be. Just, it it would all depend uh, on I, his mood that day. Have you uh, <laughs> have have you rolled with a, a black belt at all? Oh yeah, at the uh, yeah. um. At, at the gym that I trained at in San Diego, I rolled with the black belt there, you know, okay. and, you know, yeah. for a white belt, you're rolling with the black belt. A lot of times 
They're just yeah. they most of the time they're just co he's be coaching me the whole time. Hey, okay, try putting your your hand here, grab my gi here, because it's just you know, it's no factor for them to just wrap yeah. you up. Yeah. yeah. It's um the, the the first time that I rolled with our uh, professor, um it it didn't make sense. <laughs> just you know, just the pressure that it can create and um it actually got worse. Um when I rolled with our, our professor Dan when I was a white belt to when uh-huh. I got a to, to when I got a blue belt and then once I got a blue belt I had more of an idea of you know I was really trying to pass guard and I was being a little more aggressive and then then he switched and then it was like oh shit <laughs> 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 that was a mistake you know once he realized that I, I kind of had some idea of what was going on then he really put some pressure on it was uh it doesn't make it doesn't make sense yeah, it doesn't make sense yeah. at all. Just top pressure, and, um, it's horrible, uh, absolutely horrible. So, um, but you know, we always go back. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah we, we always go back. We're this. We're uh, the same as yourself just now, Jason. Our gym's closed because Scotland's still in a full lockdown situation. So we're hoping to get back into the gym in the next few weeks, all going well. And it's been a long three months with no mats. Yeah. Don't uh, get it. Uh, it, it has it's this thing is just crazy i don't know where it's gonna go i think that we're we're getting ready to go into the math all seems to indicate that we'll probably be in another lockdown here in the u.s in the next couple of weeks yeah i i've got a friend i served in the navy with he wasn't a seal but uh he picked it up and it laid him up in the he was in the hospital for five days and i guess it was really yeah. touch and go He's 50, so, you know, and not doesn't have any pre-existing conditions that, that I'm aware of. So it's just, it's crazy. Were you, um, were you guys okay? I know you said you're, you're quite rural where you are. Did you have any, like, strict lockdown or was it kind of not so bad where you are? They, they, they locked our county down and for a period of time. And so like non-essential stores like nail salons or uh, bars and restaurants. they Restaurants could still do takeout, but everything else was closed. No gathering of groups of like 10 or more. They've mm-hmm. scaled that back. So restaurants are at half capacity. Um, they're asking everybody to wear masks, but people are just not doing it for whatever reason. And uh, we'll see. Now, our lives where we're at really didn't change that much because we're 40 minutes from town and uh it hasn't impacted our county that bad only because i don't think it's gotten to to it us yet it's inevitable that it gets here and then uh we'll just have to work through it i know that in rural areas it, it tends to be even a lower mortality rate i think because the exposure level people are getting just isn't as much as yeah. it is with high dense areas. Yeah. yeah, we 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 were like along the same lines where we are. We are in we are in small villages, um, mm-hmm. sort of you know twenty minutes from Edinburgh. So we you know there's there's not really enough people. You know if I go out for a run or you know I go to the the shop, you, you might see ten people. You know you you don't see a, an awful lot of people. So we we are kind of lucky uh, where we are. But you know the big cities are, you know what what crazy um as far as i'm aware yeah. so, but i you know like you i don't i don't really watch the news or pay attention to anything i just kind of try and make sure you know i've done everything possible 
um, to to look after myself and and uh, take it from there. Really, um, that's, that's yeah. Else you can do in, in those situations. So, um, but well, yeah, hope, hope, ho- hopefully, hopefully it doesn't come back with a vengeance and we can get back to jujitsu and and uh, practice murdering each other again. <laughs> um, yeah, but yes. Yeah. Um, well, I'm. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, going watching sunset, so I'm, I, I need to go. Nice, <laughs> yeah, awesome. Just, I'm going just over there as well. Yeah, I'm looking outside my window, and it looks like it's going to be a really nice sunset. So I've got about half an hour, so I want to run to a little loch round about where I am and, and go watch the sunset. So uh, I'm starting to run out of things to see anyway. There's only so many things you can see before you start sounding ridiculous. So for me, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Just um, just before we wind down, then Jason, if people are looking for you to find out a bit more, where can they find you on social media or anywhere else? So, uh, you know, I'm the most active on the Instagram at Jason dot n dot Gardner G A R D N E R. Uh, I work for Echelon Front, and you can find out about Echelon Front Jocko and Life's company, where we serve uh, solve leadership or solve problems through leadership. That's at echelonfront.com. And then my wife, Iris, has a YouTube channel where she kind of showcases a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, living in a rural area. And uh, Mm -hmm. the channel's name is Iris Gardner, I-R-I-S-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. And she runs like seven to 10 minute videos that just the outdoors, horses and kids and wildlife and stuff like that. I like, we'll I, like the sound, I, I like I like I like I like the sound of that. That sounds interesting. I'm I'm a kind of a nature guy, and I like all that. Obviously, I'm going to watch sunsets. I, I like all that kind of stuff. So I'll go and check that out myself. Um, but yeah, it was a, a a real pleasure for us to to speak to you, Jason. Hopefully, we weren't uh, too too dumb too dumb for you and didn't didn't make a an ass of ourselves too much. But uh, it was a uh, great fun. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun. I mean, that hour and a half just flew by. Thank you so much for, for sparing the mile and a half, Jason. I appreciate you're a busy man, you know, a family man with young kids and obviously with your work you're doing with uh, Jock and Leif up at uh, Echelon Front. So we appreciate you taking the time to do that. We'll, we'll tag these uh, Instagrams. We'll, we'll, I know me and Chris are about to go and subscribe to your wife's YouTube channel. Um, we'll try and get Wait. some of our guys to follow as well. Thank you so much. Um, episode 27 in the Kangans. Jason, thank, <laughs> thank you very much. much. Awesome. Thanks, fellas. Out here. The Silly Goose Gang Podcast.